One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Rachel Sylvester. And I'm Alice Thompson. And we are on our way to interview Saji Javid, who we interviewed a few months ago just when he lost his job as Chancellor. And it will be interesting to see if he's in a different mood now, because then there were still packing cases everywhere, and he was only just moving back, and he was worried about the dog and the children moving out of Downing Street. So it'll be interesting to see how they settled in. He's been Chancellor, former Home Secretary, former Business Secretary. He served under Theresa May and David Cameron, MP for Bromsgrove. And then he fell out with Boris Johnson because he wouldn't fire all his special advisers at Dominic Cummings' insistence. And he resigned rather than agree to those orders. And also I find it rather fascinating that he does in a way epitomise a different kind of Conservative. He was the working class son of Pakistani immigrants from a poor area in Bristol who got to the top and he was asked it by an old Etonian. Due to the restrictions of Covid, we recorded the interview in Saji's West London garden. It's a windy day and a busy flight path. The sound you can hear in the background is the trees rustling in the breeze. It's beautiful but noisy. Saji Javid, welcome to my home and I hope you like the coffee. <laughs> The last time I think we met you, you'd just moved back in, hadn't you? And um, there were packing boxes everywhere and you'd just resigned as Chancellor and everything was in transit. The children hadn't yet got back. How does it feel now? Have you settled down? Uh, yes, I think we have. But obviously that was a big change uh, for us, unexpected. Nice to you know, get back home after that. But of course, what happened very soon after that, just a few weeks later, uh, was a big change for everyone in the country with the lockdown starting. And uh, so I found myself at home, not having the, the, sort of the busy life of a, of a government minister, uh, locked down the whole family back, all the kids back. Is it incredibly frustrating, though, the fact that you left just as we were about to hit a huge crisis? Don't you, as someone who's incredibly active and always thinking, um, obsessed really about the future and how to shape Britain, isn't it frustrating you're not in number 10 or there, number there 11? Is a, there, there is a, a part of me, of course, that uh, would would like to be there on the front line, um, uh, coming up with ideas, helping to uh, implement them, and, and, and especially at a time when the, the country is going through this, um, you know, this terrible crisis, and uh, you want to help. And that's why I came into politics and government in the first place, is you want to help your country. Do your family miss Downing Street? And does, perhaps most importantly, Bailey the dog miss Dylan, Boris Johnson's dog? Bailey would definitely miss Dylan. Uh, they got quite close, and, and Dylan is a very lovable uh, dog. But uh, family-wise, I think we're just all happy to be back home. I wouldn't say we miss it now. What did your mum say when you left the Treasury? Oh, that took a bit of explaining <laughs> to do. Was she pleased or was she devastated? No, she wasn't. Uh, 
No, I wouldn't say she was pleased uh, because she knows that I had a, a, a big job that I liked, that I wanted for a long time. So I think she was surprised. Uh, but I explained it to her. I called her up that day, that later that day. But obviously she already knew watching TV and you know, chatting to my brothers and things. Um, at first she thought, she said, oh, did, did Boris fire you? And I said, no, mum, it's not quite like that. I left but, and, and you know, I chose to leave. And she likes Boris and still does. And uh, um, she, you know, she, she met him at our 50th birthday party and was chatting to him. My 50th birthday party and was chatting to him and things like that. And so she's fond of him and still is. Uh, but she was tr really wanted a bit of an explanation as to how mm. could this happen you know, so soon after winning a general election as well. And you still think you did the right thing? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Because there was that extraordinary moment, it was at the last Tory conference, I think, where your mum was in yeah. the audience and you mm. said to her, you, you switched to Punjabi and you said, you know, she, she was so proud to have seen the first agents move into Downing Street. Do you, was that a big symbolic moment? I didn't know you speak Punjabi. <laughs> <laughs> I read the translation. <laughs> uh, it was, it was a, it, I, I, for me it was a wonderful sort of uh, moment where I was just sad that my mum was well when I met her backstage after she said it was so sad that I would, you know, her husband my dad yeah. uh, couldn't be there mm. and it was my dad would have loved that absolutely loved that moment yeah. well that's the extraordinary thing isn't it because it's been a very long way from Stapleton Road in Bristol which is once described as mm. one of the worst streets mm. in Britain to Downing Street and for him that must have been absolutely phenomenal to watch yeah and I think you know, by the time he died I, uh, I think I was already MP, but I, I, I was uh, PPS to the then Chancellor, right. uh, George Osborne. And, um, and he knew it was the job that I would have ultimately loved to have had. And, uh, and then I remember him saying, and, uh, you know, he's quite close to his death then, and he, he was saying, that, you know, isn't it, you know, you're working for the Chancellor, isn't that amazing? And aren't you, you know, you're, what's it like being in the Treasury and all that? I, I still think he wouldn't, even then, he would. If I'd said, Dad, you know, uh, I think in a few years, you know, would you think if I was Chancellor? I don't think he would have quite believed it, because it would be such a, a big thing. But uh, it was sad he couldn't see it, but at least he got to uh, see me uh, become a Member of Parliament, which he was incredibly proud of. Can you just describe your childhood home? There were seven of you, weren't there, living in a two-bedroom flat? Yeah, with my flat. brothers, yeah. Mm. yeah. Did yeah. you argue a lot? With my brothers, yeah, all the time. <laughs> yeah, we have five boys. We, we moved around a bit, so we have different places we lived. At first I lived in a part of Bristol called Bedminster, and that was above a shop as well. And then we moved to Stapleton Road, and that was above the shop as well. Yeah. In both cases, actually, there were two-bedroom flats. And uh, in the room that I was in, there were two double beds, and I shared a bed with my, one of my brothers my youngest brother, Atif, and my parents were in another bed in the same bedroom. And uh, then my brother, brother's in the, in the second room. And so, yeah, it was quite a, you know, cozy flat, but... Uh, so no yeah. privacy? Not was, really, yeah. not really, no. Where do you come yeah. in the order? I am uh, number three. Okay. Yeah. So the middle. And, uh, yeah. And, and actually my, my mother had you know, five boys in seven years. Five. And so we're, we're all reasonably sort of... Uh, close, you could say, in terms of uh, you know, our childhoods. It must have been hard not having any space, particularly as you became teenagers. Yeah, we used Did to you? actually spend a lot of time out on, on yeah. the streets. 
you know, because I think partly I wouldn't have thought it at the time. It would have been, I think, surely as a result of not having much space at home, especially in school holidays. We, I would be out, you know, until mm. the, the the sun starts setting and things. And, uh, and my uh, because my parents were working, uh, you know, there was no one else to look after us. They'd, if they were both working in the shop, and then even when the shop has closed, they're still counting the stock and the takings and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So for, we'd spend quite a bit of time out and about. They were very aspirational, your parents, in a way, for you, weren't they? Because they took you to the library and you obviously all did your homework. Did they really want you to succeed? How, how did they get you to work, really? Well, they... So, you know, now that you know, I'm older, I can appreciate it more and understand it more. But I think that my parents, for them, like the story, I think, of many immigrants to, to the UK... Yeah, they they both came from a, a very poor village in in Pakistan, and uh, and they went halfway across the world to a country that wasn't their own and completely different sort of you know, setup in in their new country, uh, to create opportunities for not really for themselves. It was all about the, the future family mm. that they were planning to have, and and making sure that you know their children would have a completely different set of uh, opportunities. And that was a message to me and my brothers. And I think, if I think about the, the sort of um, how they, for me and my brothers, sort of uh, my parents trying to make sure that we would do our very best, I think it's providing a, a, a comfortable, secure family environment in terms of, not comfortable in terms of material comfort, mm. but in terms of plenty of love and affection and, and encouragement, which I acutely recognize many families don't have today and I was very lucky to have that uh, it was uh, appreciation of very hard work work ethic I mean they worked incredibly hard mm. both my parents your dad and was known as Mr Night and Day wasn't he was and that was when he worked on the buses mm. and that was mm. before he had the shop um, mm. and that's because he, he volunteered to the bus company that as well as being his first job was as a conductor and he said I also want to be trained as a driver oh. and do two sets of hours in those days I think health and safety sort of allowed you to probably work <laughs> night and day and uh, we we were so that sort of work, you must you mm. must be on the move. You must be doing something, and that's why you know. Some I have talked in the past about you know, my mum would sort of even at weekends marches to the library on the yeah. Saturdays and things, and we'd have. To, and she couldn't read English then right. properly at all. So did you but have to would, sit there for hours just reading? Yeah, and she would knit in the corner, right? And also, you know, typically do that. And um, how long did you have knit, to stay there for? Oh, about four or five hours. So did you then also translate for her? Yes, I did. Uh, yes, in the early days, yeah, when she didn't speak good English. Uh, I did, and my brothers did uh, as well. I'd take, you know, things like well, going to shops, um, going to the doctors. And, uh, that must have been quite and I, used to, I used to go to doctors, there's nothing wrong with me. My mum right. was ill, yeah. and I'd have to... Yeah. That's quite strange, interpret. though, isn't it? Because yeah. then you... It's yeah, what, I would, what I, you're the first time, I'd probably like seven or eight, mm. and I would sit there, my mum would sort of be there, and I'd have to... So look, the doctor says this, and, and I, uh, I was truthful. I wasn't making. I, I, I was. I, you could sort of say, doctor says you've got to give your son medicine <laughs> every day, and you'll feel a lot better. But and what about school? Did you at school? Did you have the same? And what about parents' evenings and things then? Did, or didn't um, happen then? Uh, my dad used to go to parents' mm. evenings, and he just he, he used to make a real effort you know, to to go. And uh, I can't really think of him missing them. Um, but yeah, and my dad's English was perfect. I think so he would, there was no issue there. And what was school like? Yeah.
Uh, my main school was uh, a, a school called Damon School, a local comprehensive. And uh, I mean, the school was, uh, I, would, I would describe it as a pretty average school. It wasn't very challenging in, in, you know, for, in, a, in a good way of you know, trying to mm -hmm. encourage, I think, the, the best out of the, the students. You know, so, for example, uh, when I came to doing any end of school exams, yeah, I wanted to do O-levels, mm. and the school was pushing me to do CSEs, mm. uh, then called CSEs. Which would have changed and, your life, really, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, and, uh, and they weren't doing it, I don't think, because just me, that's just what everyone did, mm. so most of the kids in that school did. So did you and, take yourself off to do O-levels? Uh, yeah, so some O-levels, so I think they were, so you can do three or four O-levels and, uh, and then you know, some subjects, but I remember one of them was maths. Right. It must be, you must do CSE. And, and I was already then thinking, oh, maybe I actually want to go and do these things called A-levels. Yes. And one of the ones I want to do is actually maths. And, now, and actually, and you so wouldn't have ended yeah. up as chancellor. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, oh, without, definitely. With yeah. A, no, not with a CSE in maths, no. I think. <laughs> and uh, and so, uh, so in that case, I did take no for an answer. And, uh, and I told my dad, and he, he managed to get some money together to get some classes to teach. Because I said to my dad, I can do it. I can teach myself most of it, mm. but there's some things in math I just yeah. I so need did a you bit find yourself a tutor? Yeah, I found. I, went, I looked in the Bristol Evening Post and I looked down tutors in the classified ads, and I found the cheapest possible one I could. <laughs> right. It was about like seven pounds an hour or something, and it was a student that was a, a master student at Bristol University, and I went round his flat in Clifton in Bristol, and uh, I could only afford like, like five lessons, and I didn't quite get what I wanted out of the fire, then he gave me the last sort of two or three for free. And right. said, yeah. And I, I Did mean, you pass? I, yes, I, I passed, yeah. Yeah, I got a grade B. Yeah, okay. I think. Uh, then, but and then my, went on Then A-level, I got grade A. So there you, are. There you go. So, <laughs> you know. And, and did you ever get to go on holidays or anything, was it? No, no. Um, what didn't. about meals out? Or? No. 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 And Bristol was quite tough. Yeah. Even then, you had, you, know, you had the race mm. riots, you had... There were lots of different areas, weren't there? And it was, I mean, there were some very posh yeah. areas and then there were some much more disadvantaged Well, where areas. we lived as a family, Stapleton Road, it was only a stone's throw away from St. Paul's. I could walk from my home in Stapleton Road to St. Paul's. Where there were, a, race, where there were race riots yeah. in the 80s. Mm. Uh, Do you well, remember it, it, Yes, yeah, yeah. I remember, I remember see, first seeing it on TV, but then mm. sort of remarking to my brothers, you know, my dad, that this is down the road, dad, you know, this is yeah. like, and we had some family friends that lived in, there's an area called Montpellier, which is sort mm -hmm. of part of St. Paul's, and we used to visit them regularly, and I remember my dad said, we can't go this weekend, or we're not going to see them, because we might get caught up in these riots, and then it made me question, why are these, what's going on, my, and my dad would explain, he said, look, it's, uh, the, the you know, race riots because these are you know, people that most people live there are black people and they're protesting against how they're being treated, and uh, and my dad would say, well, and they've got a point, you know, mm -hmm. they they they've been really badly treated, some of them, and why should they put up with this? And and, and to be clear, he'd always say, look, the way to protest isn't through riots, mm -hmm. but they do have a point, and uh, and that's got me thinking uh, a bit more about. Well, I guess even before then, some of the racism I'd faced, I'd already thought a bit about race, but yeah. it got me thinking it's a much sort of bigger challenge in the country than maybe just me and my family. What kind of racism had you faced? Was it mainly at school? Yeah, yeah. It was mainly at school or walking to or from school, so related to, to that. 
and uh, and it would be it, mostly it would be from kids, you know, young kids or actually even you know older than me, and it would be you know called packy or um, you know lots of other nasty words, um, and uh, and and you know I I didn't obviously I hated it, and I'd want to sort of you know strike back as it were and things. Did you? And, yeah, I did. Okay. Yeah, yeah, a few times I got into fights. And did your parents mind when that? Yeah, my dad didn't like it. Uh, first, oh, you mean getting into the fights? Mm. Uh, yeah, he wouldn't in- encourage it, but also equally, uh, there were a couple of times where I said, "Look, Dad, this guy called me back, and I punched him in the face." And I said, "Well, okay then, well done, but don't do it again." <laughs> um, and uh, but there also was an incident in my school where there was an older child that that uh, just walked up behind me and just started. Um, punching me and punched me to the ground before I could even sort of defend myself or something. Mm. That was a particularly bad one. What and then happened? he he got expelled. So okay. I went straight to the uh, headmaster and he did get expelled from the school. And but in also in the school, that school, there were only three kids that were not white and that's me and my two brothers. Right. in quite a religious way or not? No, not really. No, so religion was always uh, the, uh, you know, part of being brought up in some ways, you know, the Eid celebrations, um, uh, things like that. But um, I wouldn't say it was a very strict religious household. And did your parents expect you to have an arranged marriage, do you think? Yes, mm. yeah. I mean, that had nothing to do with religion, but yes. Just culturally. Yeah. And, did, yeah. and how did they tell you that? Did they actually look out for, uh, in your teens, were they looking for a bride for you? Yes. I, I didn't know, actually, at the time that they were. Did but, they find uh, one? They did. Well, they found someone. I won't say who it is, but they, they did. And, um, and, uh, and I was only told this once I, I'd started university, so I was 18, and I'd met Laura, my you know, my then girlfriend, and now my wife, and uh, and then I so thought I, I don't want to keep this a secret from my parents. There's no need, so I went and you know, told my parents, and then uh, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know why I'm smiling, but I, I look back and it was quite a funny thing to say. My dad said, "But you can't, you know, you can't have a girlfriend." And I said, "Why not? You know, you can't be serious." I said, "I'm serious about girlfriend," mm. and that was it. And I said, "I might, you know, she's so even though I'd only known Laura for about four or five months." I said, "You know what, Dad? She's so amazing. I think I might." Want to, I might want to marry her one day, right? And he said, no, you can't do that. I said, why not? He goes, you can't. And I said, why not? He goes, because you're already engaged. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. And I thought, what? That <laughs> so must such so a shock. should have told me. <laughs> Did they tell you who the, your fiancé was? Yeah. And was it somebody you knew? Yeah. And how did you feel about that? Well, it wasn't... It was, uh, my, it was about what my... My feelings were about what my parents did. It wasn't about the individual. And, uh, yeah, yeah, so I, I found out I was engaged without, you know, just like that. Um, but so were they disappointed that you rejected well, that? Well, I, I think in, in, the, in that, those early days, they were disappointed, right? Because, and again, it's sort of culturally, it's what you did. And, and I don't blame them for thinking like that initially, um, and it all worked out well in the end. So did they meet Laura then? Yes, but it took a while. Mm. It took a while. They didn't want to immediately meet her. And, uh, and so because I think they were hoping I might change my mind. 
And after about a year or so, when they realised that this guy's serious and he's not going to give up, I think what they'd also realised is that I don't give up. Pakistan with your children too? Uh, I have. Actually, Laura and I went to a wedding, but it was many years ago, so when we had three of our children, and they were quite young. Yeah. Have you been, and have you met lots of your extended family? What, what's it like yeah. when you go there? It's, um, they, I mean, I love meeting family mm. whenever I've gone to Pakistan, and um, it's, it's great, first of all, to be able to communicate. I properly communicate. I mean, a lot of them will speak English. It's not necessarily always great English, but but the older sort of members of my family they don't speak English, and uh, because Punjabi was my mother tongue, you know, I can speak to them. In in fact, what they would say, they because their Punjabi in the villages has sort of moved on. You know, like all languages yeah. slightly. So moved do you on. have an English accent then? Well, I have a bit of an English accent, definitely, but <laughs> also, it's um, uh, it, it, my Punjabi. I think is. Um, Old school. Okay. So, so 1950s. Yeah, because my like Punjabi queen, is right? what my my what my parents taught me yeah. from the 60s, right. right? And it's frozen in time, and it's a bit like old English, yes. right? So, so like they laugh like at you. Old village and <laughs> stuff like that, and so <laughs> it's um yeah they they sort of have a have a little smile I think at that and the accent put together, but at least I can communicate because yeah. what they will say is that when the sort of third generation of um, you know British Asians and stuff coming to Pakistan, place like that. They can't speak the language, mm. right? And uh, and uh, they, and then you really notice that it's really clearly you know, bonding that communication is just that much harder. And are they surprised that you're an MP? Um, or does it yeah, run in the family? Yeah. Um, but politicians, I, I was just going to say, politicians in Pakistan don't have a good reputation. <laughs> uh, but I don't know. <laughs> that might be globally true, actually. Um, uh, but uh, they, but they know it's, it's different in the UK. And it's a, it's a you know, big thing. They know you don't, you don't get to be a politician in the UK by buying votes and, and corruption <laughs> and things. So they, I think they respect that. It was interesting. I went back as Home Secretary, and that was um, interesting because to go there as a minister, and a senior minister in the UK government, and I went there. The new government had just been elected in Pakistan, so I met you know, the Prime Minister Imran Khan and others. Uh, but they, like Imran Khan and the other ministers and people that I met, they would all remark just how uh, amazing it is to see how Britain has come along. I mean, Imran Khan told me that uh, that he said when he was playing cricket in Britain, the county teams, he said there was so much racism right. in those days. And he said, I'd never thought I'd, I'd meet here in Pakistan a British Home Secretary that is uh, as a Pakistani. Well, it was the Norman Tebbit cricket happened. test, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, there we are. I passed it. Yeah. yeah. Do you, because I remember uh, when you became an MP, didn't your father tell his friends at the mosque and they assumed you must be a Labour MP yeah. because the idea that uh, you could become a Conservative was so extraordinary. Is yeah. that right? That's what did right. They yeah, and that's why right. do you think that was? Well, I think it was just uh, for you know, growing up, my parents' generation growing up in Britain when they sort of came in the 60s and uh, the yeah, the, most of the jobs that understandably people like my dad would get, whether it's on the buses or the mills and things, would be sort of um, very sort of unionised sort of labour jobs. Uh, I think the expectation was that most, in, in, that, in that community, that most people would support labour. Also then later there was, you know, Powell's 
you know, rivers of blood speech, which I think turned many ethnic minorities against the conservatives at the time. And, uh, and in that generation, things like that are not easily forgotten. And so I think that amongst his friends, they must just assume, look, of course he's going to be Labour because any politician, you know, councillors and others that he went were probably that were Asian were probably Labour. And uh, uh, but he obviously explained to them that's not the case, and you know they understood and things. But it was just I think an automatic assumption. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. When you became an MP, didn't your father tell his friends at the mosque and they assumed you must be a Labour MP yeah. because the idea that uh, you could become a Conservative was so extraordinary? And it's partly because you went to university, do you think? I mean, was that a big difference for your family that... You went to Exeter yeah. and you met a whole range of different people there. Um, yeah, it made a very huge, involved, a huge politics, difference. Right? So education, uh, whether university or otherwise, I went to you know, local college before that to do the A-levels I wanted because that school I mentioned wouldn't let me do them. Um, it, it's been a, a big part of my life. And, uh, and, and what my parents said when I was a very young child, that you know, if you go to school, read your books, do your exams and you'll be able to you know, do much better. They, of course, they were absolutely right. And uh, I think that's true today as it is as it was then. Um, and, uh, and that's one of the things I've always valued education hugely. And in every role I've had in government, whether it's linked to education or not, I've tried to sort of promote that. Were you the first brother to go? I was the first, yeah, first in my family ever to go to university, yeah. But all your brothers have been incredibly successful, actually. It's extraordinary. You've got one who's a chief superintendent, haven't you? They've all had very successful careers. Why do you think that is? Do you think your parents just gave a... Is it just the work ethic? Yeah, well, he's a commander now. Yes. And, oh, uh, has he been and, uh, Yeah, he's at the Met. And, uh, but, yeah, no, I, I think we're very... At first, I just think we've been lucky and fortunate with some things that we've had, like a, a good family the work ethic that was sort of pushed into all of us that you know my dad often would just say things like um, that you know, no one owes you a living you're gonna have to work hard for everything that you get sayings like that often in Punjabi but you know, those kind of <laughs> sayings and uh, uh, and I think that that was for me and my brothers it, it you know, we, we listened to all of that we all worked hard at school I think it's that combination of uh, your know, family hard work um, and uh, education are probably the, the, the three sort of big things I'd pick out. We'd be very lucky. And why did you choose banking after university? 
I didn't know much about banking. I didn't know anyone had been in banking and things. I was, uh, uh, at that time, in the 80s, I'd, I'd read a lot about sort of banking and the city in particular, and this thing called the Big Bang and all these opportunities opening up. Um, I also, um, I wanted to prove to my parents that I can make some money and, uh, and, and help them with it. And uh, they were still living above the shop. And um, I actually, I wanted to buy them a house eventually. Right. And I just thought I want to do something that might help me make some money that I can help my parents. And, and, and if I sort of didn't reach highs for a job that might pay well, and that was really what probably motivated more than anything, to be honest. And I just thought, uh, that, you know, why not try this thing called the City of London? And you know, people say you can, if you do well, you can make a lot of money. And because uh, your I, school had been much more dismissive, haven't they? I think they, their aspiration for you and your careers advisor was to be a TV repairman yeah, or right. something. And sort of, yeah. so why do you think that's just a sort of tyranny of low expectations? Yeah, that definitely. They... Oh, that, yeah, that, without question, in that school. That is just what was, as I said, they did, you know, you sort of automatically went and did your CSCs rather than your levels, and uh, and uh, the, you were so expected to go on some apprenticeship, whether it was right for you or not. I was nothing. I mean, I think apprenticeships are brilliant for some kids, and there's nothing wrong with them at all. But there shouldn't be an automatic assumption that's the only thing that's available. Have you been back to your school? Um, I I did. Oh yeah, it's changed a lot after yeah, after I became MP. Just sort of visit. I did, but not anything sort of uh, more formal than that. I did go back to my college, which I'm much more fond of mm. in terms of uh, how it helped me. There I met a, it, one of the most inspirational people in my life that made a big difference was um, a gentleman called Charles Stambolier, who was my economics lecturer. And, uh, and without him, actually, I also, as someone I'd pick out, that I wouldn't have been you know, chancellor in government. Because uh, he, I just had started studying economics, didn't really know what it was, thought I liked it. And uh, he said to me that, you know, you are really, really good at this. You don't realise how good you are. And I was really quite dismissive because I hadn't really, I'd never, ever been told by a teacher I was good at anything before. And I was quite dismissive at first. And he said, no, you don't understand, you're, you're exceptional at this. And he said, you're so good that you should not just do A-level, you should do something called an S-level. And I said, what's an S-level? I've never heard of that. And he said, it's a special paper for those that are really gifted in a, in a, in a, in a topic. And so I, I was, again, quite dismissive. And then he said, no, look, we'll do this, and I'll teach you. There's some extra things I need to teach you. And he three or four times I went around to his house uh, and sat around his kitchen table, and he taught me and another student. And uh, I went. I did the S level and got distinction in it. Right. And um, so he was right. He was yeah. absolutely right. And and so he then said, university was the and next he said step. you should study. You know, he said mm. uh, he said you should go to Cambridge like I did. And uh, I that was the one thing I just refused to apply. I said, what was that? Because it was too. Because I thought I'd never get accepted. And um, I learned from that, not for me personally, but later, when I was business secretary and overseeing universities. And, and, I, and I saw there's real value in, in sort of positive action to get people from difficult backgrounds to think about university by getting to visit and understand what it is and what it isn't, and that actually it can be a welcoming environment. And I just had this image of, 
Oxbridge mm. that it wasn't for people like me and uh, I was, I was going to get picked on, I was stand out, I was too poor and all these kind of things, which I was wrong to have that idea. I'm not saying it is like that, uh, but I, I just I remember having a conversation with I just said, that's it. I said, I will do the S level, but there's no way I'm going to apply to Cambridge. There's right. no way I'm going to do it. Because remember, no one had ever been to university mm. in my family. I didn't know a soul apart from him that had gone to university. I didn't know anyone. Mm. And so just going to Exeter was a massive thing for me, applying to a place like that. So um, I didn't listen to him on that. Did you love Exeter then? Yeah, I loved it. It was turned out to be, you know, wouldn't have it any other way now because I met lots of friends. The the the, uh, the what I studied was great, and um, and it was because of getting into Exeter that I, I think then I got my job in the city that I wanted, uh, and uh, so it opened up so many doors. But again, when you went for your interviews in the city, it was you 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 weren't. It wasn't. What was it like? Did you feel that you were going to naturally fit in? No, I didn't. It, actually, there was a big distinction between uh, British merchant banks, as they were called then. Um, they're all thankfully gone now because they're all, you know, you're, you're seeing a bit why I said that. But And then also the sort of big sort of uh, the, uh, investment banks, the more the American sort of banks that, that came after the big bang. Uh, and... And the British merchant banks, in fact, when I was interviewing with Andrew too, they were very stuffy, very old school Thai, and uh, I don't even know why they gave me interviews. And I remember in one of them, uh, the first question or the second question they asked was, what does your dad do? Right. Right. And what did they say when you told them? Well, I said he works in a shop, he's got his own shop, and uh, before that he was a bus driver. And they, I think they just said, eh, and that was it. <laughs> um, I don't remember much more. And I just thought, I, I was just thinking, there's no way I'm going to get a job, and I was right. Uh, because and that, and I just left with the impression unless you had gone to the same school and the same sort of um, holidays and things you there's no the connection just isn't there you're from a completely different social group and did that make um, you really angry yeah I was uh, not angry uh, yeah uh, yeah angry more than um, upset I was more sort of angry to want to change things mm-hmm. like that they really that kind of uh, elitism that kind of sort of privilege it just has then and now it just has always really uh, annoyed me and, and, and made me just think that people that don't have that weren't born with that silver spoon and um, uh, uh, but they are still very talented and capable they just don't get the same opportunities now I think we've come a long long way since then but we've still got more to do and in that case you know, I interview with these two British merchant banks they're both the same in their attitude but I also interviewed with uh, two American investment banks that had sort of opened up in, in London and were looking to hire more people. And I got offers from them both. And, and then later, when I, and I joined a bank called Chase Manhattan, and uh, after I joined, I remember asking one of the guys that was keen on hiring me, and said, why did you hire me? Because they, that, that year, they hired, that bank hired 12 people in Europe, and I was one of them in terms of graduates mm. and I uh, said so why do you mean? and he said oh because you got hunger in your belly and you didn't wear green wellies <laughs> and uh, so that was an advantage yeah well, his point was you were just hungry you were really hungry mm. for this when we could see that right have you ever had green wellies um, actually, I've got some wellies now, but they're not green. But <laughs> <laughs> then principle. why did you join the Conservative Party? Because there are quite a lot of welly wearers in the <laughs> Conservative Party. Why? Because I, at the time, because of Margaret Thatcher. Right. Because then actually, if you even just think about the, from a, the... 
And the shopkeeper's daughter. The story as well. I told you. Mm. Yeah. Uh, she, had she not opened up the city to competition and ended the cozy monopoly of the merchant banks, people like me would never have got a job. The reason I got the job was because she, as a politician, as a leader, was against the sort of monopolies, the, the sort of cozy clubs that existed and smashed it open. And was your right? father very much an admirer of Margaret Thatcher? Yes, he was, yeah. yeah. So do you worry that the Conservative Party is too much still the party of privilege and that there is still that perception about it? Um, I, mean, I, I don't think it is the party of privilege, I, I really don't, but I would accept that in, in some parts of the country there is still... Uh, that kind of perception persists. I think that, again, you'll give the example of Margaret Thatcher, who I don't think was a, a you know, product of privilege, and I think she did a huge amount to help people with my background and people that you know, to succeed on merit. something slightly ironic about the governments keep saying they want more diversity of thought in Downing Street, more diversity of social backgrounds, and then actually there was you, the son of Pakistani immigrants, grown up in quite a poor background, were forced out. Oh, no, it was my decision uh, to leave, uh, but if you look at this uh, government, in terms of um, the, whether it's um, the, your people's ethnic backgrounds, the number of women in the government and stuff, it is, compared to past governments, you know, there is clearly there's progress uh, being made. And as I say, it's not, it shouldn't be about uh, what, what school someone went to and things like that. It should be about what they can contribute. But um, the, it is important, I think, when the country looks at who governs them, that they also see themselves as a reflection. And, you know, I'm proud that, yeah, yes, I've left the government, but um, I'm proud it's, it's Rishi that also happens to be an ethnic minority, but he just happens to be an ethnic minority. He's there on merit. That's Pretty Patel is my other old job and things. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's great that we've got that diversity still in government. And do you now feel part of the establishment? Uh, oh, that's a good question. Um, and do you I are feel really part of the establishment? I guess you could, in, in the sense that I held two great offices of state, I mean, it, once it would be a bit silly to say yeah, I'm not part of you know however you define the establishment, but do you feel um, an inside or an outsider? No, I was going to say I, I I still feel like an outsider, and by still I've always I've always felt an outsider, and I still I still do. I'm not I don't feel I'm part of some not that I want to be, but I'm part of some sort of closey club and. I will get things given to me. I still need to fight for things. I have no problem for that. You know, I want to work hard for everything. Um, but um, I, I, I don't feel like an insider, no. So do you think, in a way, your background gives you an advantage in politics because you've, you have an empathy, perhaps, and you understand where people are coming from in a way that others who've had a more privileged background can't yeah. understand? I, w I wouldn't describe it like that. I wouldn't say it's an advantage or, or disadvantage in that way, but I would say that... It gives me, I have a different uh, understanding of, of things and uh, maybe a different approach. One of the, the sadder things that's happened to you recently is your brother dying. Mm. Um, and how did that affect you all as a family? Because you're a very close-knit family. Was mm. it very, very difficult to get through? And did it affect yeah, it you was. as a politician? Yeah, it was completely unexpected. And uh, yeah, it was. You know, we were, as you say, we were very close. It was my eldest brother, 
and uh, I couldn't be I, my actually my one of my other brothers uh, he called me I was in remember I was in a car coming back from seeing my mum actually and uh, he was the he'd found out first from my um, brother's uh, partner and uh, and then um, I couldn't believe it and it was it was uh, you know a very very sad moment and then I was just thinking about my mum how we're going to break this uh, and he'd committed mom. suicide is that right yeah. Do you yeah. know why? Did you? No, have... I don't. No. No, I don't know. So it's still something that we don't really understand. We found out afterwards that I didn't. Know he was he was had a chronic illness that we weren't aware of. Uh, that doctors had told him that he might not have you know, the time he thought, and um, so I it's speculation because he didn't say he didn't even know saying any of this, but if you know, I think it's probably connected to that. Mm-hmm. And did it, how did it affect the family? Did, did it make you pull together or give it even a greater yeah. sense of urgency? No, we, we pulled together. Mm-hmm. Well, we were a close family anyway, and we all chat regularly and things, but it made us all um, just, you know, because especially as the, as the boys growing up, there were always five of us. Yeah. And, uh, and, you know, one of the five is gone, and it's, uh, it's like something's just permanently, it, well, it is permanently missing. And even now, often I think if someone just said, "Oh, you, you," but I always automatically think five brothers, four, four brothers, and you know, fivers, and and I know it's not true. But also, it must be hard when he was the eldest. So in a way, he was he the one mm. you always looked up to. So he would give advice to you, or, or was it not like that? Uh, yeah, no, he was. Um, you know, I told you a moment ago we chatted about you know, when I had that racist attack in school when mm-hmm. I was about eleven, and uh, he was at school. With, he was the he was in the final year then I think, and uh, and I remember he was someone had rushed and told him that your your brother is is in a fight, mm-hmm. and he's the first one to come and pick me up from the ground, take me to the headmaster, fight that I didn't, mm-hmm. and so he'd always yeah he's like so an he elder brother you. yeah yeah there were lots of moments uh, like that and, uh, and that's probably what you miss the you know, miss the most mm-hmm. you know, just have someone there that's uh, always you know, looking out for you. And do you feel very protective of your younger siblings then? Yeah, yeah. yeah we're, so we're all still uh, very close. And uh, I think we've, it's probably fair we feel sort of protective of each other. And uh, uh, there can be a bit of annoyance still now and again. And uh, I remember my, my brother who's uh, in command in the police. And recently he's been in charge of the police response uh, in London to a lot of the protests that we've been seeing and some of the sort of uh, illegal raves and things. And so he's been doing a bit of media, which he doesn't normally do. And going, obviously, you know all about media. And he said, oh, the first day I did this, it was so bloody annoying. I said, why? He goes, everyone, uh, oh, you're Sajid Jawa's brother. <laughs> he goes, I'm not Sajid Jawa's brother. I'm the commander of this. <laughs> you know. Ever joined any clubs or actually when you were chancellor you had Dorneywood didn't you which is almost well, it was like a club you, you just get it it's a it's a it's a but almost more extraordinary wasn't it isn't, isn't it a sort of grace and favor country house with yeah. staff and yeah it was nice it was very nice and uh, but I wouldn't describe it as it wasn't some kind of cozy secret club <laughs> but um, your daughter yeah. left a note didn't she advice for future prime ministers yes, yes. what was it the advice? I can't tell you you have to ask her she won't tell you she's not at home actually <laughs> that one it's, it's top don't, secret don't fall out with your chancellor no there's lots of secrets I know it's one of them I can't tell you <laughs> um, uh, but she um, it was interesting she, she, she hid this note 
unknown to me and Laura in a in a book. And those Dawnie was I've got lots of old antique books and things. And uh, she probably found some book that hasn't been touched for like four hundred years or something, <laughs> and she hid it in there. I didn't know about this. And then um, a, a few weeks uh, later, uh, one of the staff there, they came up to me and Laura said, listen, uh, nothing to worry about, but we had our sort of annual audit by the National Trust and they meticulously go through every little thing and they obviously take every book out Amazing. and check it, right? And they said, but we found something in a book. I'm like, oh my God, like someone's damaged one of these books. She said, no, we found a note and it's written by one of your daughters. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. They said, no need to apologize. It's now become part of the estate, <laughs> right? And they've, and they've put it in yes, the, yeah, it's, it's there. And it's, it's been noted as a note from Maya at Dorneywood. We put a date on it. But you can't have it. It belongs to, it belongs to the trust now. And are you okay with that? I'm like, okay, well, fine. And Did so, they put it back in the same book? Well, they put it back. And yeah. I didn't know where it was. So then I had to, like, call my daughter and say, look, what's this thing about a note? And she was thought she was in trouble. Obviously, she wasn't. And then she did show it to me. But then that's all I can tell you about it. And then it joins everything else at Dorneywood, because aren't there all sorts of things from Churchill and all sorts of people like that? Um, yeah, I mean, there's lots of history there. So a very nice place uh, while we had it. And um, I hope Rishi's making the most of it. <laughs> I wonder whether your background gives you a sort of resilience and a determination in a way to do the right thing rather than just to take the trappings of power. It certainly is true that my parents, the way they brought me and my brothers up, we were always, always being told what's right, what's wrong, can't do this, you shouldn't do this, this is how you treat someone, um, that don't just, just because someone says something doesn't make it true, do your own research, all these kinds of things. And, uh, and I think it has rubbed off on all of us. And, uh, and you know, the, like the, the mo when, I, when I resigned, yeah, there were probably some people out thinking, like, why would you resign when you're the Chancellor of the Exchequer? Like, why, like, isn't, like, you know, why didn't you just accept it and just think, you know, you should get Dorneywood and stuff, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, to me, it's, uh, it, it's not, obviously, I, you, you love the job, but you've got to be able to do the job in the way that you think you need to do it. And, uh, uh, and, and so it, it, was, it was such a, a natural decision in some ways, even though it's a big decision, it's such a natural decision. And the person that knows me the best is my wife. And uh, I remember you know, she didn't obviously expect that. And I remember as soon as I sort of finished in the cabinet room, I went up to the flat and my wife was there and the news wasn't out. And she said, oh, so how'd it go then? And I said, uh, we're leaving, I'm no longer Chancellor. And she said, what, what? You're just like, you're kidding me, it's a joke, isn't it? I said, no, we're not, it didn't work out. And then immediately she said, okay, well, fine. Right, okay, when do you want to go? I said, right so now. So she started packing? Yeah, no, literally, we did, yeah. And, but the point is, she understood straight away that we didn't have to have a conversation. They're like, why, why didn't you do that? It was like, if Sajid has decided that this was the right thing, then clearly there must have been you know, principles behind it and stuff, and, and that's what drives me. What's the single thing you're proudest of having done in your life and career so far? Marrying Laura, because it led to so many other things. Mm -hmm. uh, but because um, you know, so many people told me I couldn't do it, you shouldn't do it, and obviously I didn't listen to them. But if I hadn't done that, I wouldn't have my four great children. I don't think I'll be able to have the the jobs that I did, and 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 because that required or I needed someone to really believe in me and she was the person that believed in me you know, the most in anything that I said I wanted to do 
Um, and I certainly wouldn't have become an MP. I wouldn't have got the jobs in government. So I think that's been the key to so much. And do you think having something very difficult to overcome in your early years actually can perversely in some ways be an advantage because you've got to have something you fight against? Uh, yeah, I think that overcoming your adversity and things can definitely strengthen you. And uh, you know, I had to, we've talked a bit about it, it a number of times, as have um, my brothers, um, and I think it does. It does. It can. It can absolutely make you stronger. Um, and one of my children saying uh, during the lockdown, get plenty of time to to chat to each other and, and think about things. One of my daughters put together a sort of CV for future jobs and things, just sort of speculatively and putting something together. And she said, "Well, Dad, you know, it's not like you." And I said, "What do you mean?" And she said, well, there's nothing bad that's happened to me. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, there's nothing, there's nothing bad. Like, you know, you had to do, you know, you couldn't marry mummy and you weren't allowed to study and you had to live in this small house and blah, blah. But I've got nothing like that. It's not fair. I <laughs> think, oh, well. She thought it was I a said, disadvantage. That's not, yeah, no. I thought that's a bit of a strange way to put it. I said, what did so she say to her? I think I said, let, let, let's sit down and, and let's, let me help you with your CV. <laughs> That's what I probably said. So, Javid, thank you very much for talking to us. Good. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thanks for having me. Past Imperfect was presented by me, Rachel Sylvester. And me, Alice Thompson. It was produced by Lucy Ditchmont. The executive producer was Matt Hall. It was a Wireless Studios production. You can hear Past Imperfect on Times Radio and download the podcast from Apple Podcasts, ACAS, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.,